Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Managing Director of Allocate, Matt Cortolo, to discuss the purpose and playbooks of AGMs for capital allocators. We dig into Matt's background working as a capital allocator initially at Hamilton Lane for almost a decade, leading the fund investing side and the secondary side, in addition to his time at MetLife as the Director of Private Equity. Next, we get Matt to share how he navigates the challenges of assessing subjective qualities like trust, openness, and responsiveness when evaluating potential partners or fund managers. And lastly, Matt shares the best advice for other fund managers when deciding on running an AGM, also known as the Annual General Meeting. But before we jump into this week's interview with Matt Curtolo, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. All right, John, welcome back to the News Rundown. Always exciting and so many great topics to cover this week. I mean, first and foremost, something that's been in the news for a while, but now we see another twist to the Clearco saga where backers are coming out and buying back its debt amid the windup of Silicon Valley Bank. So just to give the headline for our listeners, Inovia has been listed as an investor on the A, B, and C round, is now teaming up with Founder Circle Capital and uh, the management arm of SVB, now controlled by First Citizen Bank shares, to buy the $60 million loan outside of the SVB's entire loan book of $300 million in Canada, which is the Clearco portion they're buying, from PricewaterhouseCooper, who was the liquidator on the liquidation of the SVB windup. Interesting, they decided to, one, carve out the Clearco from the entire SVB book, and two, that Inovia is now going in and buying uh, the debt after they've obviously owned the equity for a while, which we don't think is much worth much probably. What are your thoughts here? I mean, and what would somebody even pay for this type of business uh, on the debt side? We're basing it on information that you know that, that we're reading about. So number one, it, it has been reported that uh, potential bidders for the Silicon Valley Canada book did not want anything to do with the Clearco portfolio of assets. There was a big difference in the quality. And so that kept on averaging down the discussion of the purchase price of the entire book. So that's number one, which kind of points to number two. If buyers choked at that, then what is that book really worth? And what's the discount that you would pay for it? Now, as an investor, for example, I seek a minimum, uh, more on late stage deals, 3x my my capital, which suggests that it needs to be at a bare minimum a two-thirds discount. However, you now have to factor in the cost to service that debt, which is not free. And there's a lot of small little borrowers in there, which suggests a much greater discount of the 80 to 90 percent range, which would make that at least you know understandable. The last thing I would say is this is an area of 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 the uh, venture world got that has gotten hit extraordinarily hard, being the e-commerce players. And do those players are they even going to survive? So the question really is, what is the quality of of that book? just to start off with. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I think the winner in all this is the uh, SVB loan book. I mean, to be able to carve out the Clearco portion and get the rest of the $240 million book off the books at a better price, let's say maybe it's sold for 70 cents on the dollar. Uh, that's great. You know, for Inovia's uh, interest, it's just feels like it's going to be a lot more work for them to kind of manage this 
portion of their investment where they're more likely along the lines of equity investors rather than running a loan book. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how they're going to manage that in conjunction with letting Clearco run as a standalone business. Yeah. And, and again, for a lot of investors like ourselves, you know, we wouldn't even be, be permitted to buy dead instruments, at least in that manner. So they uh, obviously have some special permission in order to do so. So, and, and I, I, and the other thing is it's, it is, as I understand it, separate and apart from the financing of Clearco as well, although it's somewhat related, it is, it is separate. Yeah, it is. And, and interesting, our friend Mark McQueen, who used to run CIBC Innovation Banking, called out that the largest loss for SVB Canada's loan book over 30 years was only $10 million in 2016 with a Montreal e-commerce company that got wiped out. So this being $60 million of a $300 million book is a pretty big hit for SVB Canada, who's also obviously been losing some people to other uh, players in the ecosystem. So we'll see what happens with that business. You know, the other part I'd like to cover uh, is the H-1B program uh, that was announced uh, at Collision, part of the digital nomad visa and open immigration policies by this uh, Canadian liberal government, has already been capped out in just 48 hours. The 10,000 H-1B workers in the United States have already applied to move to Canada. There's some uh, tug of war happening online with people in favor and against and opposed to this. Some people say it's bad for the housing crisis. Some people say it's great for uh, people wanting to come live here who are highly skilled. What are your thoughts on this new H-1B program already being capped out? Yeah, I mean, that's a ridiculous comment about it's bad for the housing crisis. First of all, we have a supply issue, period, end of story, which needs to get fixed. We have an infrastructure issue. Absolutely. Does it get under further pressure? Absolutely. Canada had a million immigrants. We're talking 10,000 people that are coming here highly educated, highly skilled, largely working for very large tech companies. Oh, and by the way, they pay taxes. Guess who's going to pay for the infrastructure? Folks, take your heads out of your asses <laughs> and see what you're getting here. Now, what's interesting is two comments. The Americans, this is what I love about Americans. You know what their response? Generally, the people who I respect are going, nice move, Canada. God damn you bastards. We like what you did. You just shoved it right back on us. Good for you. That's number one. Number two, you know, there's also a small buzz of folks saying, oh, no one wants to stay in Canada and the tech ecosystem's weak, blah, 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 blah. Utter, utter nonsense. And the talk now is, was the 10,000 threshold far too low? I mean, look, I think a lot of people you and I both know who went to work in the U.S. in their early parts of their career to build on top of somebody else's platform and who had the luxury of leaving to come back while still working for that American company, that's like a win-win-win, right? Like I did that. I moved down to New York and Boston, got to work, you know, for some large companies and establishing a network down there, but then coming to build something back in Canada. I mean, that's great for all different kinds of reasons. And now we're giving that opportunity to other people who want to live here, raise a family here, which have great benefits, but work and get paid by an American company. I mean, that is a win for our economy. Beautiful. Beautiful win. And you can go down there and visit anytime you want. Absolutely. So I don't know why people are getting so hot and bothered by this, but I think it's a win and we'll see how this all plays out as this, hopefully this uh, software platform doesn't go down as often as all the other ones built by the government. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> that's another story. You know, speaking of uh, losing it and losing money a little bit, Elon Musk came out with a tweet saying there's still negative cash flow, obviously, since the 50% drop off in advertising revenue hit the company. 
after he acquired it, you know, he's brought in this NBC Universal leader, Linda Yarcarino, uh, and he's obviously trying to find other ways to bring advertisers back to the platform, even despite the Twitter blue payments that he's receiving, given that there's a $1.5 billion interest cost that are only going higher as interest rates rise. I mean, first off, do you still think he's going to pull it off, even though it's showing that he's doing a better job than Threads uh, in the first little bit here? And secondly, should he just bite the bullet and do an equity raise? Yeah, I mean, if, if he does an equity raise, um, of course, he's going to finally have to recognize the massive valuation drop. And But you know what? I'd rather have a capital than, than, than have the risk of, of bankruptcy, largely because the interest rate on the debt is floating. Uh, I don't know what the full percentages are, but it's getting actually more expensive. Number two, on the revenue model... Like, the, the 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 blue check has been a, an abysmal failure, and until such time as they actually truly create real value with the blue check mark, that's not going to be the savior. So right now, in the absolute immediate term, is the advertising, and until they give the confidence to the advertisers, he's going to still struggle. Now, the the thing is interesting on threads. I think you and I had talked about it. I I, I do believe this threads is going to be Google plus it's already showing the signs of doesn't matter how many registrations you have. It matters on what the activity is. And I've been floating around on there and, you know, been trying to really find something interesting. It is kind of boring right now. And it's very dangerous from a social media perspective because do you go there and do you leave? That's what happened at Google Plus. We'll 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 see. But I I never I never count out Elon. But he's going to have to swallow his pride on his on some of the arrogance of believing that he was just going to you know turn this around so so bloody quickly. You know, this makes me bring up a post that your co-founder and partner at Mavericks wrote, Mark Maybank, about how founders can effectively navigate through persistent inflation uh, and sort of the challenges with a rising inflation environment. First off, what made Mark want to write this? And two, do you think now founders are more focused on these types of you know macro issues that they never used to talk about, like CPI and GDP and inflation and all these types of things when managing their business? Yeah. So at Mavericks, we actually take a macro first investment approach. So we always look at the macro first and then come to the micro investment. What I have found in my investment career, a, a large number of folks go the other way. They find a good deal they want, and then they justify the deal by taking selective macro events. What what we had discovered is when we're having these discussions with a variety of founders, because so many of them are so young, there, there's been a certain type of a market for the last dozen years, uh, uh, and, and so many of them just don't have that historical understanding and and in Mark's case because he's focused in on the financial services industry where inflation and interest rates obviously are 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 correlated but it has such a dramatic impact he was quite stunned on how few really understood what the impact might be yeah absolutely i mean we talk about so many different things now in board meetings like inflation and treasury management like a lot of things that just 
are the guts of an organization, but we never really brought them up on quarterly board meetings. They were always these like 10,000 foot conversations, but now people really need to understand how can they adjust their pricing uh, and prepare for these types of recession conversations like budgets being cut and headcount being reduced and things like that. You know, speaking of impacts with inflation, M&A activity has picked up. A recent report uh, experienced a significant increase in, you know, bankers and lawyers and dealmakers seeing a surge in discussions about potential acquisitions in recent weeks compared to last year. Uh, and we're seeing some more deals being done. It was a 23% increase in the first quarter as, from Deal Logic. So what are you seeing out there? Do you think we're now at this sort of, it's not going to be as bad as everyone thought it would be from last year kind of conversation? I, I fully expect, we we thought that the, the M&A activity would be the precursor to eventually, you know, IPO and, and other activity. And the reason is the the incumbents who have stronger balance sheet, they're, they're looking for deals, as are many investors. And, you know, what you do want to do is you don't want to make a move where you really are unsure about your own business. But a lot of folks are now kind of thinking, all right, we're probably at peak interest rates. We're probably starting to see maybe the 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 economy not getting any better but perhaps not getting drastically worse and this might be a good time to take advantage of an opportunity before something positive really happens to make the the pricing more expensive so i think it's a great time yeah i think also the um the dry powder on the sidelines for growth equity and private equity investors they have a ticking time bomb on their investment period with these funds that they've raised. So they, they're, they're starting to enter into the halfway point of their investment period, and they need to get to work and deploy that capital or else they have to give it back or roll it over or change their LPA and things. So there are those dynamics, I think, that are also affecting them. And then also, as soon as corporates start making direct investments, which we're seeing a lot in the AI space with NVIDIA and Google, plus the big private equity guys moving parts around in their portfolio, the smaller kind of mid-market private equity guys, they need to start doing stuff or else they're going to be left behind, right? Right. Yes. And, and you know, I'll use us, for example, there there is really worse two shoes. The first shoe that that we uh you know avoided thank god was we stayed out of the market for 18 months because the the bid ask spread was just insane but you can't do that forever as well too we are very anxious to do a deal but we won't do it at any price also so it is worse to do a bad deal than to do no deal at all because if we did do a deal say a year ago we'd be starting off at a negative 50 to negative you know 66% hole in our pocket and guess what you never ever fill the hole so there is a balance but but uh, the market is coming to us quite strongly and it is becoming a great great time to look at uh, uh, the opportunity, assuming, of course, you have dry powder or a great balance sheet, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, speaking of deals, it looks like we are far apart with your uh, your brother from another mother, Mark Ruffalo, and the actor, oh, Screen Actors yeah. Guild, on strike here. Yeah. Over 160,000 from television radio artists to writers, you know, on strike here. Hollywood has grinded to a halt, shutting down production. A lot of it related to obviously the impact that AI may have on the content creation. You know, I saw a tweet out that uh, said by Bob Iger, CEO of Disney says that the uh, writers going on strike uh, are not being very realistic and it's very disturbing. 
And someone wrote back, you know what's disturbing is that most Hollywood writers are paid $69,500 a year on average. Bob Iger makes 75000 a day. That's very disturbing to me, Bob. What are your thoughts here? Well, uh, two different thoughts. Number one, the, the, the sympathy is really with the writers. But what's kind of funny is when the actors are coming out making these same accusations, but <laughs> hey, dude, aren't you worth $100 million? Like They've got to take their heads out of their asses as well, too. Now, the thing that I may have missed when I first heard about the AI, when I read about it, they were worried about the use of AI in terms of script creation, et cetera. I don't know if you saw the latest change was, was not that, but rather the monetization of the likeness of AI images. But then I thought something's wrong on that because one applies to the talent and one applies to the writer. So if it's the writer that is concerned, which was what I thought was the original grievance in, in, in particular, my response to that is, hey, folks, Jane, join the rest of the world and do something creative. Because if you're writing drivel that a chat bot or a chat uh, platform could could otherwise do, you know what? you will be out of a job and you're not protecting anything. So that one there is kind of an interesting topic uh, to see where that lands. Yeah, agreed. And I think that also because of how much content has been created digitally over the last several years with obviously online streaming platforms, you have to understand this, the pace at which we've been going is almost impossible to be kept up with, with human labor. I mean, they need more uh, efficiency with computer generated content uh, to be able to keep up with the demand. So there's going to be this huge gap and I just don't know how they're going to live in a world without AI going forward. So they need to figure out a partnership almost. Yeah. And by the way, I asked Margaret Atwood this very question, you know what her response was? She said, I don't basically give a crap about this. I'm in the original human thought business. Right. So more, more maybe more people go independent. And they don't use these platforms that are basically trying to purchase anything they can from them. They create a more Correct. In independent, uh, you know, uh, content creation platform. You know, last thing I got to ask you, John, before we go, you're Italian. You love Italian food. <laughs> it's been in the news lately. Two things. One, we've got an olive oil crisis, not an oil crisis, an olive oil crisis, you know, happening in Southern Europe with temperatures soaring and a prolonged drought particularly in Spain and Italy and Portugal, where crops are being damaged. And I'm seeing that the price has risen from four euros per kilogram to over seven for olive oil. Number one, what are your thoughts here? And is this causing you some panic and concern at home? And second, I've also heard that Italian food as we know it today is actually not originated from Italian cuisine, but it was imported from mostly America. So two thoughts there. What are your thoughts on those? Well, the, the first one, it, like, like all foods, this is, you know, the climate change crisis is impacting. The, all, the, uh, the wine growers in Italy are having the exact same concerns, particularly around water. So it is something that is terribly uh, concerning, but for all types of foods. And, you know, the olive grover, growers is, is another great example. Yeah, the, the reference, uh, there's a... Uh, I guess he's a podcast host. Uh, uh, Grandini is his last name. And he's basically going around actually telling the truth, apparently. I haven't fact-checked about the origins of Italian cuisine. And if my uh, nonna was still around, she'd be rolling over. I think she's rolling over in her grave because as far as I understood, this has been around the cooking 
particularly poor Italian cooking for, for, uh, I thought, uh, you know, centuries, but it turns out that it might just be the Americans, uh, and it was the Italian Americans who emigrated really in the early 19th century that started using the very good ingredients in North America to reverse engineer and, in fact, create these fantastic dishes. And then Italy imported them right back. So maybe it was just the inputs that changed that made them better than what the original creations were back home. Yeah, you know what? And it's not that different. So, you know, by uh, my, my family's half Korean, we go to Korea, love the food there. But the ingredients here in North America, in my personal view, are greater. So I actually enjoy the food more because of the quality of the ingredients. So, but again, in Italy, the difference is so many of the ingredients are uh, grown locally and immediately to the table. So to me, the difference there is they actually taste much, much fresher. But you'll see it's the opposite with Jewish food. I mean, Israeli <laughs> food is way better in Israel than it is it in is. North America. Like with the spices and the flavors, we don't even get them here. I actually, the first time I went there, I was like, what the hell? I had a. This is not Jewish food. It was spectacular. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's not gefilte fish and uh, matzo balls. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, it's much better Middle Eastern yeah, exactly. flavored food. So we'll see how this shakes out. But thanks again for joining us in the tank today, John. All right, thanks, Matt. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Matt Crotolo from Allocate. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Matt. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really excited to be here. You know, Matt, you've had such an interesting journey as an allocator into the private and alternative investing world. So I'm excited to have you speak with us today. But before we jump into that right away, it'd be great if you can give us a brief introduction on yourself and how you made your way into the private investing world and eventually into venture capital. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I grew up in a in a small town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. It's about, the way I tell people, it's about 90 miles due west of New York City, 90 miles north of Philadelphia. Rural area, um, interesting story. The whole family came from Italy, so third generation. Really interesting story about that town in terms of family being nearby. And uh, there's something actually called the Rosetto effect. I would encourage people to take a read and just the benefit of having family around you. So I, I grew up with all that family and security and folks nearby, spent a lot of time with folks. As a kid, always loved numbers. I was a big sports fan, always read the box scores in the newspaper. I realize how much that dates me for some people, but used to look at the box scores, used to look at the stock ticker symbols in the newspaper. My dad is a math teacher, so I got a lot of that experience. When I went to college uh, in the Lehigh Valley, about 45 minutes from where I grew up, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to end up. So I dabbled in, I sort of said pre-med, pre-law, just trying to figure out where I wanted to go ultimately landed on business um, and then graduated in the early 2000s. And given the geographic location, I had a good spread in terms of I could look up in New York, really anywhere on the Eastern Corridor. Again, the family being nearby, wanting to stay close to that, but ultimately ended up finding a role in the back office at a firm called Hamilton Lane uh, in 2004. Invested private equity advisory firm at the time and really was just a great opportunity to learn the business, um, had many roles, which you can talk about. Um, but that was really my first foray. It was serendipitous that I stumbled upon that role at a time when private markets was really becoming more in vogue, more ubiquitous in the markets. 
You know, I love you uh, dating yourself, yes, with the box scores and the uh, the stock tickers. You're a bit older than me, but not much. And I remember those days. I didn't have a father that was a math teacher, but I had a brother who was 10 years older who was in the investment advisory business uh, from an early age. So I got to learn through that. But talk to me about what that was like, you know, sort of when you were sitting around the kitchen table looking at those numbers and trying to gamify almost like the the, the sports betting or the sports industry and and the finance industry, you know, what was it that you really latched onto? And what do you think that was that allowed you to sort of really invest your time into it when you could have been playing on the street? I think the idea that there was more to the numbers, right? So there were numbers on a page, but what was the story? It's, it's eerie now that I think back almost 30 years, like how much that relates to my current roles. But that was really what intrigued me is, look, I can look at these numbers and, you know, depending on how many how many hits, how many runs, how many strikeouts a certain player had, how the teams were performing, you know, trying to extrapolate from that. So not just leaving it at the numbers, but really being able to pull out a little bit more than that. Same thing with the with the tickers, right? Just sort of processing that. And what does this mean? How should I look at these on a relative basis? So I think it, what it really did was start to grease the wheels in terms of thinking about, okay, I have this data, but what do I do with it? How do I think about things? And at an early age, asking questions, you know, having, you know, what does this mean? How does this apply? So I think that was also really helpful for me as I think back on, on how that process worked. Isn't it interesting? Like to hear you say, you know, there's more behind the numbers, like what's the story here when you were, you know, a teenager saying that, and now in your adult years as a full-time investor, still saying the same thing. It's all about the story because the numbers, as we'll get into, can be misleading or are the wrong signals, for you to focus on. And there's other things behind the, the numbers that you really need to understand. So I'm glad to hear you say that as your answer. But you know, you mentioned you spent almost seven years at Hamilton Lane, one of the leading investment funds in the US, you know, initially on the client facing side and then on the secondary fund side and overall GP management. You know, what was that experience like? And how did your time there shape your views on client services and what made good clients uh, respect you? So, so it was the first first role that I had out of school. And, and the way I think about it, the firm was about 10 years old, but I equate when I started there most akin to kind of startup life. We were hitting a really strong inflection point as a firm as the industry kind of evolved. So Hamilton Lane and, and many other advisory firms, there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, some noise going on there. So there was some shifting of clients. And for me, I got to really experience all of those different things. So at Hamilton Lane, we took on a lot of large advisory relationships. We expanded into more fund-to-funds type product, managed investment vehicles, became more global. So all of that let me at a really young age see things from a lot of different lenses. So a lot of opportunity, excitement. And, and the one thing I usually come back to is learn to be uncomfortable, right? Like you, you're just learning. You're just really trying to figure out what's happening. You also make decisions at a pretty quick pace without full information. Again, it all sort of comes together when I, I put all this in a, in a context of a career, but very much fast paced. And, and to be honest, the best client learning, you know, from being a part of all these conversations was just to listen. I mean, at first I was a young analyst and an associate, so I really needed to learn how to do it. So that was more watching, listening to some some great mentors I had over the years there. But then I really focused on listening to understand the goals and the problems and the pain points. And honestly, that made me a better solution provider for them. And I think that just went a long way as you talk about 
how do clients respect them? You don't, you're not viewed as a service provider. You're really viewed as an extension of the team and a part of their process. So being able to listen, being in that room, understanding what's going on, I think that was a big, a big learning for me that I've carried through the rest of my career. Yeah. So again, you said the same thing that I was just going to say, like being comfortable, being uncomfortable in your career and in dealing problems is something we tell our CEOs all the time. It's actually crazy. Like the best CEOs in our portfolio are the ones who are comfortable being uncomfortable uh, and that thrive in uncomfortable situations. And I guess like the other part that you mentioned, like client services, it wasn't like clients, plural, it was client services. It was one client with many services and focusing on that client at that time versus like worrying about all the other things you have to do that day is also probably something that helped you uh, stand out from some of the other service providers in the industry, wouldn't you say? Such a nuanced way to think about it too. And at the peak, I think I was responsible in some capacity for you know, a couple dozen clients. But really when you're, when you're focused on that individual client, big, small, different type, you, know, you had to understand what was happening there and give them your full attention to be able to address those problems. Yeah, it's quite unique. <laughs> yeah, very, very much. It's it's a a model that works. I think if you have the right mentality of look, I and, and right now, I mean, as you think about today, you're getting pulled in so many different directions, both macro news, micro problems. You know, certainly in the startup world, making sure the lights are on. Like you know, you have all these things that you have to think about, uh, but being able to focus in and, and really deliver the highest service. You know, at Allocate, we're really focused on that as well, just extreme client service and really making sure everyone is getting the highest and best attention. Right. I think the hardest thing for people in the services business to say, but eventually becomes a, a huge advantage is to say, like, when you're in a meeting, I'm not actually in a good headspace right now to give you my full attention because I've got something going on and I really want to respect the time with you. So do you mind if we reschedule and come back to this? Because I really don't want to be rude right now or take something from another situation and bring into this conversation. Wouldn't you say that's like one of the hardest things to actually say, but when you do it, it's such a huge weight off your shoulders. It is. And, and I think the counterparty also feels that it's like, look, that's, that's a sign of respect to, to me and my time. And you know, Matt, we were going to have this great conversation today, but you know, I just wasn't there and doing, you know, rescheduling that sure. There's a little bit of tediousness of, of scheduling, but certainly respecting each other's time, respecting, you know, that people are at different in different places at different times. I think that sort of stuff is great. For sure. Physically and mentally, essentially what you're saying. Now, you moved over to the head of private equity at Hurdle Callahan & Co. for almost eight years, managing the private equity investments and managing over 75 GP relationships. Talk about client services. This was a different client base, obviously from Hamilton Lane. Can you explain how putting people first in your day job as an allocator and investor in private funds and companies over those eight years influenced your decision-making process? Hurdle Callahan, unlike Hamilton Lane, they, they pioneered the outsourced CIO model, the OCIO model. So their, the client base there was families, small institutions. Generally, I, I felt like we were closer to the capital, to the, where that was. It's not a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund, which still you know, had folks that we were dealing with. This was a little bit closer. I, I got to do two things that I really enjoyed, both the client service and the investment management piece. So with my mentor at the time, a guy by the name of Jamie Johnson, we, we built a portfolio basically from scratch. There was an existing portfolio, but really thought about what did we want this portfolio and ultimately program to look like. So really trained me in terms of clarity of thought. And, and honestly, in this case, we built a, a single program that all clients would participate in. 
So thinking about the, the initial message, so, so the what, that really was, you know, we're able to set client expectations. Like, what, what are you actually investing? It was a single vehicle, but we also wanted to put, you know, that individual client first. I believe most of those vehicles had well over 100 individual LPs. But, you know, something you really take to heart there is the, is the people first mentality. It's something that I have said throughout my career, both in terms of how we manage internal stakeholders, how we think about clients. When I say clients, that's GPs that we invest in, that's service providers. It's really anyone that you touch, any, anyone where you have a bilateral relationship. And, and in that case, since we were closer to the money, we got a lot more insight in terms of what clients' goals were. I, w- I wouldn't say it changed the way I thought about this, but being sitting across the table from the family who had generated their wealth and had particular concerns about certain parts of the market, uh, you know, we weren't necessarily going to change what we were doing directly because of what that single person was doing. But that aggregation of all these individual LPs and what they were thinking about, as well as the, taking the inputs from the market, really, it, I think it was really valuable from my perspective. Well, I'm sure our 75 GP relationships plus all the LP family relationships, that's a lot of people to service. And so was this an open-ended evergreen kind of fund strategy? It was a it was a series structure. So every 12 to 18 months, we raised a dedicated vehicle. So that, that was helpful from the perspective of knowing how much you had to invest at the outset. So the portfolio construction was in a, in a really good spot. And then I think also thinking about client planning. So that's one of the things that had resonated for me in my time at, at Hamilton Lane was thinking about this in a long-term perspective. Uh, you know, when you, when you take the public markets, decisions are made in an instant or in a day, and you think about the trading mentality of that. When you think about building exposure to the private markets, that's going to take years. You think about diversification in vintages and cycles rather than I buy today, sell tomorrow, or, or buy high, buy low, sell high, kind of those things. And those are nuances to how we would kind of deliver those messages. So it wasn't just we had a vehicle that you, you would effectively have that ability to trade in and out of. It was a programmatic way of every 12 or 18 months, you get the opportunity to, to pseudo rebalance and change your exposures. But we always advocated for consistent participation. Now, between the first GP relationship you had to the 75th GP relationship, was there anything nuanced that changed in the way you analyzed those GPs? I mean, there's got to have been some tricks along the way that you learned to help suss out you know, the, the ones to filter in. Can you share any of those insights? As I sit here today, probably have met with a few thousand managers, um, and you can do a lot by just reading their materials, looking at the numbers, but, but being able to assess kind of the story, we mentioned it before. It really only comes with repetition. So even in that case, the, the first manager we invested in versus the 75th manager, along the way, you kiss a lot of frogs, right? And, and top of the funnel should be as, as big as possible. Taking a lot of these meetings, what you realize, and I, I realized early on, is GPs are great storytellers. They're, their best quality in most cases is being able to articulate their story. So I remember first few years, I wanted to give a commitment to everyone. Everyone I met with, I said, this is so compelling, so interesting, but only until you index towards things like authenticity and motivation. I know we're going to talk about some of those, those intangible aspects and you know, we're investing in people. So it just, it, it became a part of what questions do you ask? 
where do you spend your time? How do we really figure out, is this a good manager? Is this a good person that we want to have a 10, 12 year relationship with? So I think the, the main evolution was the types of questions that I would ask that were more focused on motivation and, and the intangible pieces rather than you did, you made this investment. Why did you make this investment? Things like that. Right. Again, not the numbers behind, but the story behind the numbers exactly is what we're going to get into. So, you know, after three years at MetLife as the director of PE, you're now the head of investment at Allocate, run by our good friends, Samir Kaji and Hannah Yang. And for those who aren't aware, Allocate, full disclosure, I'm an angel investor in Allocate from my family office, Ripple Capital. So I have to give that out. But maybe explain to our audience you know, what Allocate's mission is and how the platform exactly works. Yeah. So, so in a nutshell, um, allocates a platform that makes investing in private markets easier. And you can sort of stop there. But ultimately, the, at the formation, so Hannah and Samir are founders. I joined a little bit after the founding of the firm. But we saw this massive gap in the market. There was really no bridge between private wealth. When you think of private wealth, single family offices, wealth managers, ultra high net worth individuals, and venture capital. So Hannah and Samir came from an industry where, where they saw both of these parties, I wouldn't say at odds with each other, but but in a in a way, not being able to connect in a in a way that really supplied, you know, the the ultra high net worth and the sort of institutional retail market, something like $50 trillion. So being able to find a way to put those together, my own view from the institutional world was institutions can only grow so big and there's only so many insurance companies and sovereign wealth funds and pension funds. So the resource and the LP base that's most untapped is this sort of institutional retail arm and building the plumbing and the infrastructure to make that happen, uh, I think was, was where we started. So there's, there are all these natural impediments between, but you know, that, that actually let this happen. So high minimums, there's a lot of operational administrative components of this that are different than other asset classes. And then, you know, the, the piece around discovery and access, where you say there's no, you know, there's no morning star for private funds or for venture. So really it's thinking about how do you go and find these firms? How do you do diligence on them? And even after you've gotten to that, can you get access? So that really hindered the participation of this market. So, so our mission at Allocate, it went on a little bit long there, but our, our mission is really to provide the investors um, and really of all types the ability to optimize their investing efforts in private markets. So most people think it's just about access to the top funds, as I alluded to, and that's not easy. But we pair that piece, uh, you know, sort of the curated private markets opportunities with a fully digital solution, which includes portfolio management software tools and other things that make the journey easier for these folks. Right. And Samir Kaji, you know, has been talking about the institutionalization of the venture capital asset class for a while. But when you say that, it doesn't just mean, you know, more money, you know, or larger checks or larger funds. It actually means like the infrastructure to support this and not just the uh, discovery portion, which is, you know, one part of the problem that you obviously solve, but also the follow on part of what happens after we invest and make that capital commitment for the next 10 years, you know, managing that portfolio construction you know, reporting, liquidity, taxes, all those types of things, you know, it's important for people to understand there's a lot more that happens just after you allocate, which is a big part of what Allocate's trying to do on the platform side. But enough about that. Let's dig into some of the good stuff. You know, you were mentioning some of the characteristics that you look for being the allocator at Allocate. Talk to us about some of those characteristics you look for 
when you want to partner with people in the private markets and why you need to peel back just from the headline numbers into more of the story there? So I, th- I think you get a lot of this, you know, we're investing in people. We've talked about people first, right? And in a blind pool industry, in most cases, we're investing with knowledge of history, but in a completely blind pool. So we're effectively trusting people, looking at their their track record. But really what we're spending time doing when we're doing diligence on on fund managers is trying to gauge these these individuals and can they execute on what they're they're talking about. So things like integrity, trustworthiness, how they treat people, and that's people, that's founders, that's other LPs, other GPs in the ecosystem. So so those are things that we suss out with with reference calls, right? So we're talking to those other folks within the industry. Um, Thankfully, we have myself, 20 plus years, Samir, 20 plus years, our team as a whole over 75 years in the industry. So generally, we can we can get to someone, at least a few people, where we can get those honest assessments of, of that integrity and trustworthiness, both with people we hire as well as managers that we're looking to invest with. It's this idea of controlled intellectual curiosity. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of peel that back a little bit because intellectual curiosity is a requirement in, in this business, right? There's new information, especially within venture capital, all of the technological innovation that's out there. I mean, that really is, you need to be always looking for that second, third, fourth derivative, never really be satisfied. Just keep digging. I say controlled because with a manager, we want to make sure they're, they're curious in the right places. So they're, they're not just all over the place, but they really are harnessing um, what is a very powerful tool with that curiosity. And, And ultimately that translates into a point of view. So with trying to assess the people, trying to make sure that they're willing to, to go deep, but also stay within a reasonable domain. And then also developing that point of view that makes them stand out. I think right now there's 4,000 or so active venture capital firms. So really what is, what are, what are the characteristics that they're going to define you as a firm, you as a, as a GP, that's going to sort of drive us to make a decision when to dig deeper and invest with. It's so interesting. I remember reading about the uh, theory of six degrees of separation, which was done by Stanley Milgram in the 1960s. And for those who don't know about it, the question basically was asked, there was 3000 envelopes that were given out into a small town, I believe in actually uh, Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania, uh, to say, give this to the most financially influential person in your network, in your community. And by the, th- the sixth pass, so it could end up on this person's desk after the first or second, but within six passes, the envelopes all ended up on the same person's desk. And it was a powerful statement to say that either way, you're connected to somebody at least through six degrees. And in venture and investing in general, those types of relationships matter because you never know when someone like you is going to analyze someone like me as a manager and how you go about getting to who I am as a person will eventually happen within six calls, basically. Uh, And it's a really powerful statement to say that that's what people do when they need to understand someone. So maybe give us some assessment um, tricks that you've learned about trying to understand subjective qualities like trust and openness and responsiveness when evaluating potential partners or fund managers. In in a perfect world, if we're having a first meeting, Matt, and we're talking about a fund, I don't even want to open a deck in that first meeting. I go right to the who and the why, like the what, the when, the where. I can probably get from the data and the deck, but I want to hear about the person. I want to hear about your backstory, where you grew up, the past roles, 
what you like and didn't like about them, and then what drew you to the career you're in now. Like that to me is understanding. We talked a little bit about motivation, and the, the why is the piece that's a little bit more nuanced. But when I ask why do why does the world need another VC, I I want to get a thought out answer, right? I, I want you to have abundant passion about this stuff, a clear vision of what you want to do and and a need that's out there to be filled. I need to hear the answer that convinces me, honestly, that when the road gets tough and, you know, for a first time fund, for any fund, it inevitably does over a 10, 12 year period. And especially for emerging funds that you're committed to kind of doing that. So spend a lot of time in those first meetings talking about those components. And so really understanding it, it's not to say that the data and the information is not something that we're going to ingest and, and analyze, but in that first meeting, there's no real replacement. There's no way I can engage that other than a conversation. So it doesn't have to be in person either. I think we'll talk a little bit about that in just terms of how the world's evolved. But you know, by this third or fourth conversation, we're probably having a portfolio deep dive, talking about all the companies, talking about things like that. But before that, I really want to set the stage of, of the why and who you are and why you're doing what you're doing, then we can really dig into the nuts and bolts. And then, as I mentioned, the, the references also help kind of piece that story together to get to an answer. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you and Samir have been pretty vocal about the why, but it was only until Samir put out that tweet about the questions about the why that he listed. I think there were like 20 questions that I finally sat down, you know, four years into this journey and actually wrote out the why post that I shared on why I'm building Ripple Ventures. And it was extremely helpful, one, for Samir to share the questions I should be asking, and two, to really lay out my thought process to share with LPs. And it's helped tremendously uh, with breaking ground with new LPs or family offices, and then just sort of give people pre-reading before they sit down and meet with us. So thank you guys for for putting that front and center for emerging managers. Absolutely. And, and you know, it comes, it comes back to something we say a lot about. There, there is no right answer to that question. It's this idea of GP thesis fit. Why are you the right person to be doing the thing you're doing right now? So there's a time component, there's your background, and then there's also, you know, do, do you have the ability to execute on this uh, on this strategy? So I'll, all of that in mind, we're not really testing you to say, well, this doesn't fit what I what I thought it was going to be. It's really, I, oh, I often come back to the word authentic, and that's really what we're looking for in our managers. And trying to piece that together through the mosaic of data analysis, of conversation, of references, and then mapping it all back to the story we hear directly from you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're halfway through the year and obviously firms like ourselves are getting ready for our annual general meeting in September. Uh, And this is going to be our first in-person meeting since COVID. Uh, And we're really excited about it. We're actually going to do a fireside chat with a bunch of special guests. We're going to have a cocktail event later on. I know you guys just had the Allocate Summit uh, about a month ago. You know, you've spoken a lot about the purpose and significance of AGMs and annual meetings for capital allocators and investors. What advice would you give to me or other fund managers about running a successful AGM? Back in the mid-2000s, when I first started attending these events, it's a very different time and era in, in private markets. As you see the cycles change, People are learning, right? And, and really, when you think about venture capital and, and private equity broadly, we're really only in the fourth or so decade of this right now. So there have been a lot of learnings. Personally, I think the mix of content and time together is really what you have to balance. It's this harmonic of the content that you can get by sending out a deck or a lot of folks now record videos, 
that's the stuff you want to try to do as, as pre-reads or advanced distribution, whatever you want to do there. The worst thing about an annual meeting is when folks are going page by page, pointing out numbers on the, on the screen without any real context. So if there's a story to be told, that's great, but really leave that, that assessment and digestion of, of materials until after, until another time. What you really want to value is what I always like to see is indexing towards the time together. And it could just be, you know, we have a meal together. We have informal time to, to chat, especially given that we're just coming back to in-person events. The community, like we talked about before, is pretty tight, right? So people know each other. People have not had the opportunity to get together and just catch up, right? So I think allowing the space for people to be able to do that with good content that's unique and distinct, and I'll say it again, authentic to the story you're telling and the strategy you're executing on, I think that makes it more interesting. Back in the day, there were a handful of speakers that spoke at all of the big annual meetings. So they, they just sort of did the tour. Now, I think a lot of people are more thoughtful about just delivering a, a good experience that enriches both the client experience with their colleagues and their peers but also helps us as LPs understand how you think about the world as a GP and an investor. Yeah, what we've heard from you know people like yourself and other um, you know allocators is that this needs to be more than just exactly a presentation reading. You know, it's got to be more than a four hundred tweet thread. It's got to have substance that you can't read in the newspaper or that you can get on some you know newspaper online you know in a soundbite. It needs to have real human interaction and quality time about what's happening on the micro level as well as the macro level. Uh, and so that's an important thing, I think, for all uh, GPs to understand out there. It's more than just the, the headline numbers. You know, but how do you assess the soft stuff, let's say, during an annual meeting, if you're a potential allocator, to gauge some of the you know, energy in the room and observing people? You know, what kind of things are you looking for as a prospective LP on an uh, AGM visit? AGMs, but also just other in-person meetings. There's this, this idea of, kind of being a poker player. You just want to try to read the table and what can you take, what what unspoken cues or or reactions to things and where people are organized. So I, I always say I love being in a room where I'm not the smartest person, which at a lot of these annual meetings I'm not, which is great. But the ability to watch people, who they interact with, particularly, you know, if it's a larger team, who are the people, who are the founders going to after they come off the stage for the presentation? Where are they sitting at lunch? Who are they talking to at the breaks? That energy, I mean, it's it, it's very hard to gauge the energy, but certainly in 2009, 2010, I, I can remember some of these low-lit rooms, very monotone delivery of a lot of things we're going through are not great. It was was not filled with energy and optimism. And we don't want that to be uh, to be phony, but we do, you know, I think want to hear the story in a in a positive way. So making sure that all of those pieces are together and, and just sitting back and, and watching and listening, right? I, I think the other piece of that is going in with a plan. Like, okay, I'm going to this meeting. What are the companies that I'm most interested in in the portfolio? Who are the partners or the principals that I want to talk to on this team to understand why they made this investment or they're brand new from the at, at Ripple. A Ripple just hired a great associate from a brand name firm, why did they make the move? Like so, so really giving yourself a plan of trying to get specific things out of the meeting 
recently listened to a podcast with Chris Saka and he said something about your own to-do list versus your inbox being other people's to-do lists. So I think about annual meetings or a lot of events like this, going in with a plan, going in with an agenda of things you want to cover. Don't make it exhaustive. Don't put yourself on a scavenger hunt, but definitely go in with the intention of coming away with certain details. It goes to you know, monitoring a manager. You said before, it's not just making the investment. It's about the 10 plus years after that. So making sure you, the annual meeting is a, a key component of that and, and getting the most out of, out of your time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point. Like doing the offsheet references, like when founders meet with us, they ask us, you know, why should we take your money? And we actually don't answer the question. We say, don't even take our question because our answer, because it's going to be exactly off the you know back of a book, you know, in, in terms of what you hear probably. So just go speak to our founders or the same thing for you as an allocator. Like, why should I give you my money? It's like, you shouldn't let me answer that question. You should go speak to other LPs in our fund. Um, because we're not going to be, you know, the best source of truth for what you probably want to hear. And so it's the same thing like you, like you should go up to the CEOs at the AGM and say, why did you take Ripple's money? You know, why are they important to you when they're not on stage presenting in front of 50 LPs? You know, speaking of stuff to be mindful of, you know, what should GPs think about during their annual meetings to ensure authenticity and maintain trust from allocators? People are always watching, right? So it, it may be, you know, the, the cocktail hour, or it may be, as things are are folding down or or things are setting up in the mornings, because the time is so scarce and a lot of these annual meetings, for those who don't know, are a day, day and a half. It's it's not a lot of time together. So I'm trying to get as much out of this, both from the formal content as well as the cues that I can pick up just by paying attention. So, So that's what I would say is if there's, be true to yourself, you know, kind of do the annual meetings in a way that makes sense for the portfolio, for the firm, the messages you're trying to deliver. We've seen a lot of different formats and they all work and they, they make sense. Oftentimes are tailored to the LP base or, or the GP themselves. Know that people are watching and don't think when you get off stage, like I used to use the example, like you rip off the tie when you get off stage and you kind of change, change who you are. But that's uh, not the case, I think, in, in a lot of these. So just understanding that People are going to be watching and, and be your be your authentic self throughout that. Hopefully, if it's LPs or even prospective LPs, I think nowadays a lot of folks are inviting prospective LPs to annual meetings to get that full experience, which I think is a great uh, a great opportunity, great idea for for GPs to use that sort of one to many outreach tool. But yeah, I think just making sure you recognize that that there's a lot there's a lot happening. We use the analogy of the of the duck. Certainly when we're talking about our summit that we just put together, but the legs are going really fast underneath the water, but on above ground, you don't really see much of that. So it's regardless of how hard it might be and and putting one of those, those on is a lot of work, but making sure you kind of keep your, keep your even keel, keep your level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, good thing I don't wear a tie anymore to rip off when I get off stage. But uh, we just hosted like a, an event around the collision conferences in Toronto, and it was that kind of feel. It was like chaos behind the scenes, but everything on the surface was very calm and collected, and everyone had a great time. So I uh, totally see that duck analogy playing out in real life. You know, I got to get your thoughts here on this, you know, emerging manager explosion we've seen over the last few years. You know, given how many VC funds emerged in the last decade, are we overusing the term emerging manager? in terms of like managers that are on fund five and six, are they really still emerging or are they like kind of assenting at that point? Because I'm very curious how you think about an emerging manager 
It, it is an overused term and, uh, you know, just collaborated with, with a few folks, Heather Hartnett penned an article in, in Forbes about emerging managers and, and how that label is not really, not really applicable anymore. But there are different terms. So Cambridge uses uh, estab- emerging, established, and developing. There's someone kind of in between there. We actually use the term emerged manager. So maybe you're not an established manager, but you're no longer emerging. You're sort of somewhere in between there. And I think that is the case. Not everyone is going to be a household name. I'd say to the average investor, certainly the investor base that's maybe non-institutional, folks who are not seeing as much depth and as many opportunities as others, but still managers that are kind of moving through that fund one to fund, generally we say by fund three, fund four, you're sort of hitting that emerged or developed type manager status. Interestingly enough, in the article that was was out there, the term that, that was decided on was um, alpha generator. It, I think it, it really does go into how we think about emerging managers. When you're investing in, in larger firms, we think there's a, there's a trade-off from risk and return. We feel highly confident about their ability to generate a, a band of returns. But the larger you get, I think the math would say generating large-scale multiples on those dollars is a little bit more challenging. Not to say you won't generate good returns, but when we think about emerging managers, often smaller funds, that's something that will potentially drive alpha within the portfolio. I, I guess you're right. It's a combination of like time in business, fund size, institutional slash non-institutional backers, uh, and then you have different buckets for those. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's not, it doesn't necessarily, I think when you think of a lot of large allocators, they do have a carve out for what they call emerging managers and emerging manager to each of those different folks is going to be different. So it makes your life a lot harder, right? As a, as a GP who might be on a fund three, you might fit in someone's emerging bucket, which, you know, you may want to craft a pitch a little bit differently if you're looking for a a captive pool of capital within a portfolio or, you know, competing against other folks. So it's understanding that landscape too, which I, I don't think we'll ever get to a place where you have a single definition, but certainly more as more and more folks come through, we're trying to think about it more globally. And what what can we say about most of these firms that well, maybe the fund size is a little bit bigger, maybe it's a fund four, maybe it's someone who's a little bit newer to the industry. So I, all of those all of those factors play in. I wouldn't say it's case by case, but it definitely gives us a little more latitude to think about those types of firms. You know, speaking of crafting pitches, I've had this conversation with our team about how maybe we should have different pitches for different LPs. You know. Being a pitch to a family office is different than an institutional investor, is different than a strategic investor, is different than a high net worth investor. What are your thoughts on crafting literal different pitch decks for different LP allocators? You can probably use the same deck, but it's really emphasis on certain areas that are going to be most important. I think as as we think about our core client base at, at Allocate, a family office and an RIA may be looking at the world very differently. And a family office that has industry expertise in a certain area, let's say they made their money in, in real estate and we're showing them, a, we're talking to them about a prop tech fund, right? It's going to be a very different conversation because of the domain expertise. If you're talking again to a, to a firm that's focused on much more IRR and DPI driven versus long-term multiple, which is a lot of cases when you think about uh, pension funds versus endowments, things like that might, be, might have different motivations. 
So I wouldn't say you want to tailor your entire pitch around that, but certainly spending more time in certain areas. And it goes back to, you know, knowing your audience too. So who, who are you pitching to? What's their big driver? Then kind of developing the story that's still authentic, that if you, if the two people you were pitching that had different motivations got together, it wouldn't be like they heard two completely different stories, but there may be areas that you emphasize and not. Got it. You know, how does Allocate assist the family offices that you work with in shaping their venture capital strategies and portfolio construction? Yeah, it's, it's a big focus for us because we always say we want to get, we want more adoption in the industry, more participation, but we want it with confident investors. I think the the idea that venture capital should be sort of a Robin Hoodized type asset category, it isn't for everybody. There's a lot to understand. So education is step one, right? We want to make sure everybody understands the structure of the asset class, the types of investments, you know, loss ratios, power law, a lot of these concepts that don't exist in other industries and other asset classes. So we start there to make sure folks understand. And I think we do a lot around that longer term planning as well. So how does how does manager X fit with manager Y? What's the combination in a portfolio context? How should you think about commitment pacing and cash flows and capital calls? Um, all those sort of other things outside of the manager quality. Of course, one of the big values we provide is the sourcing diligence and access to a lot of these firms. But there is much more around that in, in crafting the portfolio and understanding a lot of those pieces and then mapping it to the individual goals and fact pattern of the family office themselves. Got it. So there's obviously like this is the pre-allocation strategy session. So let's say your post-allocation strategy session and you're in this sort of downturn volatile market right now. You know, how are you uh, design strategies or giving tips and sort of you know, advice to these you know, newer family offices who have just invested into the asset class for the first time to mitigate the sort of challenging economic times we're doing? Yeah, it's uh, something I always battle with. And, and a, um, Jeff Buskang from Flybridge had put out an article about the illiquidity of the asset class as a feature or a bug, right? And, and part of it for newer folks in the asset class, not being able to get out of these investments when the market does get choppy is a big benefit. And it does help us have the conversation of consistency. When we look at the data, the number of funds, uh, or I'm sorry, the performance in vintage years that are around the time of a market downturn or a recessionary period tend to outperform those that are not. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, but you should be leaning in when the markets are most choppy, when it feels most uncomfortable. And really when the markets are getting overhyped you really want to start pulling back. But we advocate, and the story that we continue to, to believe in is consistent participation over multiple vintage years. So that's the story we're telling folks. Look, if there's there's other things, if there's liquidity concerns and things like that, we can have that have an immediate imprint on the portfolio. But again, re- reminding folks that in, in a drawdown type structure, you may be making a commitment today, but that capital won't be deployed for 18, 24, 36 months. So kind of thinking about that, stretching out the the brain to think about the time horizon rather than days and months, but but quarters and years. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I talk about the liquidity because I came from the liquid world. You know, I was on the trading desk day in, day out. Liquidity was like all we talked about. And it was a huge feature for the public markets. But it's also an incredibly 
tough emotional thing to wrap your head around. And I, you know, when I was trading, I was like, you know what, what if I could only trade once a day or once a year on my birthday? That was the only time I could do any trades. Like how much better of a trader would I be? Because I wouldn't actually be, you know, you know, caught up in the, you know, being the best trader, trying to time the market and trying to pick the bottom and time the top. And when I think about sort of like some of the companies now that are public, like how much happier and more efficient would they be, both their investors and, you know, the uh, operators of the business, if they just didn't have to talk and think about the liquidity price all the time, because it sets this bogey for the stock and the whole company to be valued. Whereas like if there was actually a really significant event that would happen in the company's uh, evolution, let's say an acquisition, or they were, you know, uh, selling themselves, like, would they actually use that exact price today to value the company? Uh, because sometimes only a couple percent of the, of the companies are trading on a day-to-day basis. And so in the private markets, it, it was a huge transition for me. But once I got into it, I was like fully bought into the illiquidity feature, not the bug. But do you think um, the LPs that came into the market in the last few years just weren't well-educated or prepared for the illiquidity uh, emotional roller coaster they were going on? And we should have done a better job as an ecosystem educating them on that? I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I, I do think a lot of folks, given the hype, um, and certainly we had such an elongated bull market that there was this ongoing FOMO. You know, as the market continued to tick up, people felt like they were missing out. And when you looked at the sort of shorter duration or, or shorter uh, interval returns, every one year return was high double digits. And that's unheard of in most private markets when you think of of that on a consistent basis. So I think folks were a little bit blinded by what they were seeing and the consistent uptrend and will this ever stop? So I I do think not having the benefit of history and personally have been through now three down cycles that you sort of know how this story goes. And when you can look at it from a long-term perspective, I do think a lot of people got caught up in that, but I, I would say too, oftentimes we conflate volatility and risk. So volatility in the private markets is artificially low because your book is marked four times a year, right? Doesn't mean the companies are less risky, but I do think a lot of folks who are newer to the asset class think about that as, think about the smoothed ride as being less risky because there's not as much volatility. Certainly over the last year, as markdowns have come through in private portfolios, people have started to have a keener focus on that. But I would say making sure people understand the difference between those things. When you look at history and data, risk, the risk of capital impairment in a diversified private equity portfolio is pretty close to zero as you, if you get out the curve in terms of number of funds in a portfolio. So if that's the main risk, the volatility is really secondary, but we always try to educate people on the different risks that you're taking in the portfolios before they make that first commitment. You know, speaking about looking out on the curve, like, are you talking internally as a team and saying, like, we think 2023 is going to be probably one of the best vintage years compared to the last like four or five years we've ever seen in venture? Certainly you would looking at history and thinking about where, you know, where we are, if you look at the macro factors, if you look at inflation, interest rates, unemployment, all of those things that feed into the economy as a whole. And then you see where the stock market has has gone over the last few years, or I'm sorry, over the last year, we would say, yes, there's probably a good chance that 23, and even 2022, because I think we've seen a, 
a big slowdown in terms of deployment pace last year. So I think a lot of firms that had dry powder that were raised in 2022 will be the beneficiaries of the next few vintage years. We're bullish about this current market. I think investors in venture, I would want you in here too, Matt. I think you can only be so skeptic, so much of a skeptic. We're optimists by nature, right? You think about the innovation and think about what can happen and what these innovations can mean in the broader economic context. And when you look at, we always say innovation doesn't, it is market agnostic. It doesn't matter if the if the S&P is up or down today or tomorrow. If you're founding a company and you have a great idea, that can happen in any context. Of course, the valuations and, and all of the, the metrics around pricing will be different based on the market. But the actual formation of innovative companies really doesn't, especially when we look back at history, hasn't been correlated to, to market ups and downs. No, human ingenuity, you know, was happening during both world wars and happening when humanity was at its worst. Um, so I agree completely. Yes, the transactions that take place for capitalists to capitalize on those opportunities is different, but I think the human ingenuity and innovation will never uh, go away and it will only compound uh, every year we continue to survive. Speaking about, you know, uh, helping LPs think about venture capital and mitigate risk, besides obviously, you know, working with you and the team at Allocate, you know, how do you suggest new LPs think about mitigating risk and capture upside in today's market in the venture capital asset class? Being realistic about the expectations, right? If we, if we look back at, at the top quartile returns in venture capital from 2000 to 2009, it was a much lower number than what it was over the last 10 years. Are either of those reflective of what we think the long-term average is? Probably not. It's somewhere in between there. So setting realistic expectations at the outset and giving yourself enough time, I think it, it's a mentality first. So whether that's really mitigating risk, it does prevent you from making what I would say are irrational decisions about allocations that really aren't going to materialize for a number of years. So starting out with that, and then also doing the assessment of how much illiquidity your portfolio as a whole can take on. So when you look at an asset allocation, look, maybe it's a 60-40 stock bond portfolio. Maybe you want a third of your equity exposure to come through alternatives. Maybe you want a percentage of that to be in ventures. So just really having an understanding of where you're allocating, what your targets are. I think one of the biggest things we see is folks don't establish that kind of plan and do a lot of things on an ad hoc basis rather than in a systematic or programmatic way. So I think that mitigates the risk as well. And then to capture the upside, we think it's it's not a market where you can trade in and out of. It's consistent participation that helps you build that exposure over time. You're going to have exposure to the best vintages and the worst, but you know, you're not going to try to time the market because it's really, really hard to do in this asset class both given the illiquidity and given the amount of time it takes to uh, to mature for a lot of these early stage companies. Yeah, very good points for LPs to think about out there. But what is the best career advice you've ever received from another LP in the space, given all the time you spent? Yeah, I mean, the LP community is fantastic. I think we, we share a lot of notes still, you know, share names of great managers that we've met with. So I think it's a, it's a great community. I think back to the initial point that I made, th- this idea of of paying attention and listening. Early in my career, you know, I was always wanted to think you got to be the loudest voice in the room or you have to make sure people know you're there uh, to show your value. But other folks had sort of said, look, just take it all in. Just look around the room, understand what, what's happening, apply that internally 
And then you will develop the confidence and the skill set to be the person who has that really important nugget of information or question to ask in the right context. So I think patience, learning, listening, all of those things, one particular LP kind of gave me that feedback and it definitely took it to heart and continue to evolve that and, and pass it along to many others. No, it's great advice and thanks for sharing it. Well, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. I think I know the answer. Venture Unlocked is, is the reason why I have a, a job at Allocate. I stumbled upon the opportunity listening to Samir Kaji's podcast, but, but also a huge fan of the Acquired podcast. Yeah. Uh, which is your favorite Acquired one of recent? The Nintendo episode. Nintendo episode was a great Nintendo, one. and then they do a follow-up with, with Sega. So as a... Yeah. That was a sad one. The Sega was sad. <laughs> Very much, but, but definitely pulled on the heartstrings from my childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Yeah, ABC. I think Fred Wilson's blog is, is one of those that, you know, it's not, there's not that much. He, he's very concise and very focused on what he posts, but just one of the best thinkers, I think, in our industry. One of the best for sure and the best returners, that's for sure. 23X DPI. Favorite tech gadget? Yes. Interesting. I, I have been playing golf for, for about 20 years now and just recently invested in a, a high-tech range finder. Basically tells you your distance to the pin. I've been playing for a while, uh, but now I'm finally learning how to play. So that's a, an essential tool. I wouldn't say it's high-tech, but it's definitely tech that you need on a golf course. So it's funny. I, uh, I, I'm the same as you. Like, I've been playing golf for a while. Don't play very often, but I got one of those in a charity golf tournament. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll try it out. But it, it, what it does is it gives you uh, confidence and certainty about how far you actually are. And you can play a little bit more comfortable knowing that you're like, okay, this is the club for this right distance. Instead of just trying to look for the 150 marker uh, every time and then guessing, uh, I agree with you. It does give you more confidence. I, it, it definitely tells me which, which club I should be able to do, whether the outcome <laughs> delivers is, is different. Yes. It's all about the preamble before you uh, screw up the shot. Uh, next is your favorite new trend. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's new necessarily, but I've been a huge advocate of, of remote work. I think one of the silver linings out of COVID was this ability that folks could be flexible. We at Allocate have a distributed team. I think a lot of models can thrive and the talent pools are much more diverse. People can live where they want to be. The flexibility that it, it offers. I think remote work is a certainly a trend that I want to become a bigger part of regular working life for, for folks across the industry. Yeah. For ones who can afford and, and make sense for their job type, then I think it, it definitely has a place and it's here to stay. So I agree with that. Next is your favorite book. It's an oldie but goodie. Um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. A, a lot of really good lessons. I, I don't know when it was originally published. 1920? Yeah. I want to say it's, it, yeah, it's, it's almost a, a century old, but some of the, the lessons in there of getting people to like you, the, the idea of smiling when you meet someone or listening, a lot of these a lot of these basic things, I, I think it should be essential reading for everyone going into a career, maybe even going into, uh, you know, as a graduation gift from high school, you get this. That's a great idea. I love that. That's fantastic. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Yeah. You know, there's a phrase that I always come back to, uh, and it's this idea of always assume good intentions, right? I think it, it changes your mindset and it changes the way you think about people. I think we live in a, in a world that People have become short and there's, there's a lot more friction than I think there needs to be. Uh, but if you just always assume good intentions on the other side, you'll give people an opportunity, give benefit of the doubt, um, have a lot more constructive relationships rather than starting out on the wrong foot. So I use it in the, my professional and personal life and 
I uh, think it's it's something that if you take to heart, really can uh, improve life. That's why you're always smiling when I talk to you, Matt. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining us in the tank today with Matt Cartolo, Head of Investments at Allocate. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 